Welcome to the World Art Now podcast, exploring the world through the material culture of its people, in association with Michael Backman Limited. Hi, I'm here today with Michael Backman, who is the owner of um, the Michael Backman Gallery in central London, and I just felt it would be good to have some insights into Michael's journey to having the gallery and the passion that drives the place, the objects and the experience of visiting the gallery. So Michael, hi. Um, hi Sarah. Pleasure to be here with you today. Please share with us what was it that you did before okay. you were <coughs> here in this gallery? <laughs> okay. Well, okay, so what's the, what's the journey to, to be here? Um, let me think. Well, um, do you know, I, I haven't always done this. I, I started out, I trained as an economist, and a lot of people find that counterintuitive to go from economics, uh, you know, the world of money and finance and so on, to, to, to the world of art. But to me it makes perfect sense because um, the true story of art is about trade and migration and people trying to earn a living. Um, when you think about it, almost every article of art that has ever been produced has been produced by someone wanting to make a living. So it makes perfect sense to me. Uh, you know, we're talking about a, a whole lot of small business people throughout history. Um, so I very much relate to that and I also relate to trade patterns and migration flows and so on. And I can see all of this in, in art. So when I look at a piece of art, it often tells me a fantastic story of, of migration and economics, business, trade, and, and just uh, a lot of cross-cultural influence that comes from trade and, and migration and, and, and so on. So your life as an economist, that was before you were based here in the UK? Yes, yes. I, I, I grew up in Australia. I, uh, I studied economics and I was particularly interested in corporate governance. Uh, that got me very interested in, in Asia where corporate governance had been an enormous problem. And I ended up specialising um, in the economies of Southeast Asia and India and, and Asia more generally and particularly in the structure of, of family owned firms. And from that I got into uh, writing books about these issues and um, doing consulting work and, and so on. I think in the end I wrote about six books on, on this for Macmillan and John Wiley and Sons in America and so on. I had a newspaper column at one stage uh, looking at this, uh, endless op-ed pieces and, and, and so on. Um, and then eventually I, I moved to, to London. and But the whole time of, of, of looking at Asian business and politics and so on, I was also collecting Asian art and uh, I got terribly interested in all that. I was interested in all facets of Asia from the politics to the economics to the art and the people and, and certainly the food. Um, and um, so when I came to London I, I thought, oh, you know, my collecting days are over because I'm so far from Asia. Little by little it dawned on me that there was a huge quantity of, of Asian art here in the UK. And why is that art here in the UK? Well, that was the thing. It didn't immediately occur to me. But in fact, of course, the United Kingdom had colonised so much of the world. And, and then I realised that's why it was here. Little by little, it, it, it occurred to me that um, 
In fact, if you're looking for art from an antiques from India or from Burma or from Malaysia or, or whatever, that in fact the best place to find it were not these countries anymore, uh, but in fact it was the United Kingdom because the English had uh, brought back, it's not that they'd stolen the stuff and so on, you know, we're talking about stuff that, that, that's, you know, uh, things that people would have bought because they'd, they'd served a, 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 on a posting in India, for example, or maybe in Singapore or something like that. And they went out to the local markets and visited the local artisans and, and purchased things and brought them back for their houses. And they might have done this, you know, say in the 18th century, the 19th century, and, and the early 20th century. And, and so this process has meant that, uh, ironically, and almost counterintuitively, the UK and England is now one of the best places to find well-preserved items from Asia dating from these periods. So your collecting days didn't finish with your arrival in the UK, and in fact, it gave you access to um, a wide selection of really good pieces. So uh, absolutely, and, and then I, I thought, well, I could make a business out of this because I could see there was so much in the UK that was sort of almost undiscovered and that deserved a second life and deserved to be given the right attribution and so on. And, and very often people were, were passing away and, you know, someone's uncle or, or grandparents would die and, and, and the people who, who inherited the items didn't quite understand what they were. They knew that, you know, uncle such and such or, or grandfather this or grandmother that had lived uh, or been brought up in, in Africa or India or, or Malaysia. And they just had been left all these things. And, and so often these items were languishing without the right attribution, the right descriptions and so on. So I thought, well, this would be quite a, a marvellous business, would be to acquire these items and then sort of give them the right attribution and the right descriptions. And then to retail them, you know, to the rest of the world, which is now what we do via our website and so on. And because the items have this sort of provenance where they've been out of the countries for, for so many decades, if not much, much longer, it, it's the right sort of attribution and the right sort of provenance that museums around the world now require under UNESCO conventions and so on. So in fact, what we've been able to do is to become quite significant suppliers of, of literally hundreds of objects that we source from only from old UK collections. And I must also say Scotland as well, uh, because a lot of Scots uh, served in the colonial administrations uh, around the world in, in the various colonies. <clears throat> so we acquire these and, and then with that sort of provenance, we're able to, to place them with museums around the world and where the items are given another life and, and so on. And often the objects are not, they're not fabulous, they're not bejeweled, but what they do do is they tell a story. And they, they tell a story about how people used to live, what they used to do and, and so on. And that's one of the most satisfying things that we do as being you know, a gallerist here in London. Put that tale back together. Absolutely. So you mentioned that you're a gallerist in London. Your gallery now on Hanover Street, absolutely slap bang in the central London shopping yes. district. Yes, we're right in the heart of central London. Is yes. this where you began as a uh, no, no, no. Uh, about uh, 10 or, or 15 years ago, we, we had a, a gallery in an earlier place uh, just to try out and see how it would go. <clears throat> and it went quite well, I must say. I, I was quite surprised. I, I, I started completely uh, fresh and took central London office space and um, 
and I've got to say in our first year we were profitable. Uh, I, I was amazed. And from that we, we grew and we grew and eventually we moved into new premises which we had uh, custom fitted out and, and so on for all of the things that we need. And um, we've never looked back. It's, it's been a, a fantastic thing and quite a privilege. I mean, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful way to make a living. Um, and it's a really beautiful space that you've created to you. showcase those things. I know that anybody who comes to visit feels mm. that it's an especially wonderful place to see these things. It, it's a great place to show the objects and to entertain and, and uh, to, to uh, as like a venue to explain to people you know what the items are and to show them the books and you know where these objects appear and tell the stories and so on. It's, it, it's a great place to be. And to bring and to the work pieces in. back to life. Indeed. To give them that significance within yeah. the world of decorative arts. Hmm. So, on a day-to-day -day basis, we know that you have a fabulous gallery, we know that you buy these wonderful pieces from UK collections, but how do you get them out there? How do you let people know what you've found? How do they um, become able to engage with you about pieces that maybe a museum or yes. an individual collector <coughs> is keen to mm. acquire for themselves? Well, of course, people are always very welcome to, to visit us, but uh, increasingly, like uh, everyone else, we're, we're online and uh, the internet is phenomenally important to how we operate. Uh, the extraordinary thing is that we sell to some very important collectors and, and some very major museums and yet I've never had a conversation with the, uh, some of the curators and so on that we deal with uh, because a lot of it now is done online and done by email and, and so on. What we have done is to develop uh, probably what I think is probably the, the world's uh, biggest website for, for this sort of material. We have literally tens of thousands of photographs online. Uh, if we have an object on, we, we often, it's not unusual for us to put maybe 15 photographs of the object uh, there with ample description, the measurements, the weight uh, and, and so on. We have YouTube footage of it so that people can see the relative size of the object uh, uh, against a person to, you know, instead of having to understand, you know, how many centimetres or, or inches. We have all that as well. Uh, and then we also have a lot of uh, book references. So where do similar objects appear? What museums do similar objects appear in? So all of that information is provided uh, along with, as I said, many, many photographs as well as moving footage of each object. And also if um, someone were to visit your website, I think that immediately they would appreciate the depth of research that goes into yeah. your write-up of every single item that you handle and the depth of understanding you have for those pieces alongside mm. Mm. very good clear photos. Yes, no, the research is just so, so important, you know, and, and that's the value that we add. We're not just getting stuff and then just trying to move it on for a profit. What we're doing is analysing the thing, making sure it's absolutely right and uh, and then demonstrating that with our research and um, but also to give the story to, to bring the item alive and I think um, I often think of myself not so much as a seller of objects but as a retailer of stories and and that's important and often I, I buy an object um, thinking will this pass the dinner party test and by that I mean if you have it and, and you bring it out at the end of a nice dinner in your house and you show everyone here's my latest acquisition and they might well be underwhelmed when they first see it, but then if you start to explain to people what it is, do they then start to become very engaged and very alive with the object and so on? 
And then, if that's the case, then it's past the, 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 the dinner party test. It has to have a story as well as an appearance. Absolutely. Yeah. So you mentioned that you work with collectors and also museums. Yes. Um, are you at liberty to share with us some of the museums that you've been able to place pieces sure, into collections yes. of? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, there are there are items. In fact, uh, as as we speak now, there there are several items on display at the British Museum that we've sold to. There are items on display in the Asian Art Museum in San Francisco that that we have sold. Uh, I was in Paris the other day and I visited the Musée du Quai Branly, which is the world's leading tribal and uh, non-Western art um, museum, and there were quite a few objects on display there that that we've sold to. The National Gallery of Australia is another one where we've sold many objects over the years. Uh, the Asian Civilizations Museum in Singapore, which is a really up-and-coming, important museum. Uh, we've sold, actually, we've sold dozens of objects to them. Uh, where else? Uh, uh, the, the Reitberg Museum in, in Switzerland is, is another one. And the list goes on. And it does go on. <laughs> I mean, I could be, it could get so, very boring. But <laughs> actually, in fact, the trade route of these objects has, um, with your involvement, gone back to countries of origin in many cases. Uh, that's so true. So the pieces that's are true. able to be seen by people who now are within their own origins and their own countries and seeing their material culture in their home country. That, that's, that's, that's definitely the case. And uh, there are some museums in some, some newer areas, newer collecting areas, where, where they're very important because they're, for example, the Asian Art Museum in, in uh, sorry, sorry, the um, Asian Civilizations Museum in, in Singapore. They're, they're collecting on behalf of Southeast Asia. <clears throat> and some of the countries in Southeast Asia at this point don't really have the rights of facilities to really conserve and preserve their cultural heritage. So the ACM is, is doing it almost on behalf of the region, which I think is fantastic. And uh, also recently we've sold to a museum in Saudi Arabia. And I, that was important for me because um, what they chose to take were interesting objects, not bejeweled, fabulous objects, but, but little objects that have a, have a story. And one of the things they're hoping to is that when Muslim pilgrims uh, come to Saudi Arabia on the Hajj and, and, and so on, that they, they would visit the museum and see sort of utilitarian things from their own cultures in Saudi Arabia so that they could learn and, and, and go back home uh, after having seen these, these objects. So um, it, it's, that's a fascinating new thing, uh, so that you know, when, when pilgrims are going to Saudi Arabia, they're not just going on the Hajj, they could also visit a museum and, and see, see things. culturally yeah. interesting objects to all of them within the Absolutely, from, from world Islamic cultures. So we, we touched on museums, but you also said that you'd written books in your earlier years which were based on economics. I believe yes. that you've also written books around decorative arts. Yes, yes. Uh, we, we recently completed a book on, on um, some of my favourite objects and with their stories and so on. That was published by Paul Holberton Publishing in London. And I've just agreed to write a book on... Um, the silverware of Southeast Asia, with a particular focus on Malay silverware, so, so that's in the works right now. Lots to be doing. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so, um, books are incredibly important to preserve the memory of the material culture as we find that the world becomes more homogenised 
and culturally people can lose touch with objects that are, can connect them to yes. their past. Yes. Um, promotion of that type of literature is something that I believe you're also um, aiming a new project Yes, yes. <clears throat> we, um, something I should have mentioned earlier is that uh, in terms of our marketing we've, we've developed uh, you know, really large contact lists of, of clients and people interested in, in the sort of art, non-Western art objects in which we deal. And so what we're now doing in, in a, like a spin-off business is, is something called World Art Now which involves a, a website and various other ways of marketing. Uh, books on non-Western art and and uh, and so on, to to our clients and other people who we know are interested in in this area, and a big problem often for for publishers and for writers, authors and so on in this area now is is to find a, a cost-effective way to to reach all of these people. Um, often it's not a problem, you know, thanks to Amazon, uh, it's not a problem to to distribute your book. Uh, and, and, and so on, your books in, in this area, but to let people know that the books are available in the first place. That's often where the difficulty lies. So what we've come up with is a new business whereby we can um, communicate with all of our clients and interested parties to let them know that these books are available. And we, we have a distribution list for, for this sort of uh, outreach of uh, almost 30,000 people, just in the first instance when it comes to, say, direct email and, and so on. And this is to share with our clients, uh, you know, uh, that these books have been published, to let them know in the first place that they're now available to be bought. And so important for these writers who put so much passion, mm. research mm. and time into creating these very important books that they get to reach the readers who would enjoy and appreciate them. That's so true. I mean, a big problem now is that half the time when some of these more obscure books come out, that um, by the time you find out that they've been published, it's actually too late. They've gone out of print, and the only way to buy them would be on, say, Abe or something like that or some other um, website. And they're now out of print, and instead of costing $50 or, or £20 or whatever, which they were published at, they're now $500 or, or, or £600. And very pounds. difficult to find a copy that someone's happy to sell. Yeah, very difficult. Sometimes it's almost impossible. So, um, yeah. so what we wanted to do was to let uh, interested people know when, as soon as the books are published that they're now available for purchase rather than finding out when it's too late. And so that they can continue to reach the people who are interested in that topic. Absolutely. So that's an exciting project, yes. and also podcasting. Uh, yeah, absolutely, podcasting. It's always important to reach as many people as we can. To, to sort of, I think in these days now of like sort of social media sameness, where the world is almost being culturally bleached, where you could go to like a village in Nepal where, uh, and, and hear about what King Kardashian is wearing, rather than what uh, traditionally would have been worn. In the area, uh, you know, th there's this sort of sameness that the world is sort of disappearing almost down a drain of sameness at the moment. So it's really important to, to be able to keep sort of traditions alive or at least the knowledge of these traditions and, and cultural artifacts and so on. So therefore, you know, th with what we're doing by finding objects and selling them to museums and to important collectors and so on, and then to promote books in this area, and, and, and then this, that's where podcasting comes in as well. It's like another way of getting the message across and to preserve the cultural memory of, of, of you know, world cultural history and, and material history.
It's so important that people with that passion invest their time and energy into ensuring that these things don't just become lost in time and that Absolutely. these histories are accurately mm. recorded and people have access to that information. You're so right. You're absolutely right. And, and that's what we're doing here. Well, thank you for taking the time to explain some of the things that you do. I'm sure we didn't cover all of them. Um, <laughs> I'm <and> sure. <laughs> no, indeed. No, but thank you. Thank you very much, Sarah. Um, it's been very enjoyable. You have been listening to the World Art Now podcast in association with Michael Backman Limited. To hear more, visit worldartnow.com. Dot com.